paper comes out of a piece of research that I recently completed, which was funded by the ESRC DFID, um, on their program uh, of work, which they they uh, commissioned to be specifically poverty focused. And the work was really looking at the impact, I suppose, the impact to a certain extent of this gas field on the area that the gas um, company called Bibiana. Now, coincidentally. This gas field, which has been, is currently being operated by Chevron, is right next door to the village where I originally did my field work. So I, I started off really by, the research started by me turning up in the village just to say hello to everybody and finding that the gas field was in the process of being built. And I set about really to investigate what had happened in the area since the gas field had come, and in particular, um, interested in um, the program of community engagement, which Chevron were currently running. So that's the kind of general focus of my work, and I've recently finished a book um, on the whole of that project. But So this is one part of it, which focuses is specifically upon ideas of giving and, on the, and the way that that might relate into thinking about CSR, corporate social responsibility. Now, interestingly, I start the paper with a paradox and in a way, it's a kind of obvious paradox for anthropologists to kind of unravel. It's, it seems like a kind of a, a question about why development projects don't work. Basically, the um, gas companies, Chevron, have got what they, they, they present as a flagship community engagement program, which um, is featured as the main story in their 2007 CSR report. If you go to the web and you click on CSR Chevron 2007, you will get a picture actually on the second page of one of the people that I grew uh, who was growing up when I did my fieldwork, a young guy called Tufail, who's seen as a happy villager who's benefited from this community engagement program. However, there's some um, so there's a program of development gifts are plenty. It would seem to be there are slab latrines, there are houses being built for the poorest people who've lost their housings due to floods, there um, is a, pro a medical program, there's uh, clinics, there are, there's an ambulance, there's all kinds of things that Chevron say, you know, we're doing a lot for them. There is an, what they call the Alternative Livelihoods Program and so forth, which I will talk about in a minute. However, what people tend to say is they give nothing. And what one hears back in response to that is the people are very demanding. Why are they so demanding? So to a certain extent, that, that's a paradox with which I start the paper. So there's a disjunction between what people claim to give and receive and what they actually give and receive. And that's not really very surprising because as anthropologists, we're kind of schooled and trained in taking apart these taken-for-granted assumptions that we've given <coughs> things and, and people should be grateful for that. However, um, what I want to really look up at are the hidden transcripts of what lies behind this program of corporate social responsibility and the moral orders that that involves. And what I want to suggest is that really to understand that, we need to get our heads around two analytically separable moral economies, in, which are based upon reciprocity and inequality on the one hand, and on another, on an idea wherein reciprocity and inequality are morally dubious if not downright dangerous. So there's two kind of sets of ideas about reciprocity. For the latter, wherein reciprocity and inequality are dangerous, which is the um, epitomised by the Corporate Social Responsibility Programme, I suggest that there are elements of Johnny Parry's idea of the pure aesthetic give, gift, in which the giver cannot become embroiled in personal relationships for fear of moral pollution. So I'm going back to literature on the gift, um, which I'll, I'll explain in, in a little while. 
These different systems are not based on primordial essences. It's not to do with the basic essence, difference in essence between the East and the West, but actually from political, economic and political structures. So in the first instance, where people want to receive and they want to have givers and they want to have a relationship with their givers, we have a weak and corrupt state which fails to provide basic needs in a context of social inequality and chronic poverty. And in the second, where we have our programme of corporate social responsibility and where to be seen to be a giver might employ, might involve danger and pollution, um, we have international markets in which corporate ethics and reputation have an impact upon share prices. Whilst both forms of giving and receiving are linked to local and global hierarchies, they function in different <coughs> ways. One aimed at creating, creating connection, personal relationships through giving, and one at disconnection, i.e. you give, but you're not known to the giver. So these, are the, these central themes of connection and disconnection have run through this research. What do these normative orders involve? In the first type, charity and helping are underscored by Islamic moralities of social redistribution and helping one's own poor. They also have an inherent, they're inherently embedded in transnational relationships, which I'll tell you about in a minute. Here, social connectedness between expatriate patrons and their village-based clients is a vital source of support for the poor. There's no secure employment, as we'll soon find out, and no state provision of social protection in times of need. In the second type of exchange, corporate gifts made in the name of CSR or community engagement aim not at long-term social relations of patronage, but disconnection between givers and receivers, for the gift is designed to satisfy a mythical state called sustainability in order to gain the approval of a global and or national audience. Both types of giving involve deeply entrenched inequality. That's the starting point. Even though the one tries to produce a, a mirage of equality between partners. Whilst within local and transnational charity, givers and receivers are clearly distinguished within an established hierarchy of duties and obligations. You're my patron, I'm your client. You give me things, I'll give stuff back to you. Within corporate community engagement, the discursive trope of partnership and helping people to help themselves masks the inequality. Okay, so um, just to give you some background to the uh, gas field and also to the background to the community. Okay, so this, this gas field, this is built by Chevron. It was, um, it kind of, uh, they discovered gas in the mid-90s. They built another gas field a few miles away, so there's a river in that direction if you're going to sort of follow this photograph. Um, however, this is not a study of globalisation coming, plonking itself down in somewhere in the south where they never had globalisation before, obviously. Because, in fact, this area, as with most parts of the world, <coughs> not all parts of the world, is already deeply, deeply entrenched within globalisation. This, this, the, the communities are already globalised, if you like. Basically, um, but, and particularly... This area is known as being a London-y area because um, a very high proportion of people in the villages surrounding the gas field sent people back in the 50s to Britain where they became established, um, where they established themselves and reunited their families over the 1980s when I was originally doing my fieldwork. So the basic, the starting point of this is a place where there are already very, very close connections with Britain. And also, where hierarchy and poverty are grafted on to these transnational connections. Because basically, the people that went abroad, they 
became, they, they set up their lives here, they sent money back, they bought, it's an absolute classic story of migration, they bought up large amounts of land at home, some of them come from relatively low status families, they then improved their hierarchies by building big houses, um, telling everybody that in fact they were Soyuds, not Ullas, changing their religious um, genealogies through various um, ingenious means. And in a project of total transformation, and that's what my, my earlier work has been about, and I don't want to bore anybody who might have heard me speak before because you know, I've been going on about it for a long time. That's the context into which this gas field was built, this flagship for community engagement. Basically, um, what happened was... Um, I've got to go through this rather boringly. Um, the people that didn't migrate, most of whom came from the low-status families anyway they haven't really been able to change their status and their, their economic, um, the placing in the economic hierarchy. So there's very, very high levels of landlessness amongst a situation where other people have an awful lot of money because they've got these links in Britain or because half the family live in Britain or they have actually, actually already gone, completely gone and reunited in Britain. This photo was actually taken in the 80s, but um, there are lots of houses still like that in this area. So that's a non-migrant household. That's a migrant household. Um, in fact, I must confess it's a slight cheat because it doesn't, it's not taken from um, this particular village, but there are lots of houses like that in the area. So we've got a place where there are already incredibly uh, vivid <coughs> hierarchies and distinctions, and those are to do with people's relationship largely to, um, to the UK. So... Absolutely central to this is that the people who live in houses like that tend to rely upon the help of people who live in houses like that. There's very, very high levels of transnational connectedness. There's high levels of support and charity that go back. It's not so much now that people have got direct remittance relationships because most families are now here. Most people's children have been born here. We're talking about people now in their 50s and 60s and 70s who originally went talking about people in their 30s and 40s who maybe went when they were small children. So, um, however, families that live in houses like that still have strong sets of relationships with cousins and just a sense of their own poor, people within their community who they think of as our own poor. You know, people that are ours and we have a duty to look after them. So, for example, when we were um, doing this research, we, we spoke to a lot of people living in the UK as well as people living in Bangladesh. And we met a guy in Burnley, and he told me that he basically funded the education of several children in the village that he'd come from. They weren't related to him. He just did it out of charity. So when natural gas was found, there was already a very strong sense of, of, of connectedness and rooted and very strong links to, um, to the UK and to the idea of Bidesh, foreigners and global capitalism. So what happened when they found the gas, when they started to build this field? Basically, when I came in 2005, they just started digging. And a lot of people thought they were going to lose a lot more land. But basically, the gas field is an area of about 50 acres, so it's not enormous. But this is an area of incredibly intense population. It's very, very intensive population, very intense use of land. And what you have are people, like, for, I mean, I don't know if that's a particular piece of land, but it's probably owned by somebody that lives in the UK. However, the people that farm it live locally and they share crop it, usually through traditional sorts of patron client relations. And not only do people share crop it, but people gain an income from it because they are labourers for the sharecroppers. When, um, after the harvest, very poor people come in and gather the grains. 
so they survive off it, and so on and so forth. There are all kinds of ways in which land is absolutely vital for the local, li- local livelihoods. Basically, um, Chevron, originally the land was, um, the, the, sorry, the site was developed by Unicol up to 2005 when, in fact, Chevron took over Unicol. Um, and there was a lot of hoi polloi at the time. There was huge activism against it being built. People were very, very upset. There was a huge amount of local opposition to it, it which linked him with national-level opposition and activism against multinationals in Bangladesh, which is seen as exploiting Bangladesh's resources. And there's a huge amount of contestation surrounding that. And also a lot of um, obfuscation in a way, of what, actually, what exactly the production and share contracts are between mm-hmm. companies like Chevron and the government. It's not clear what the deal is. People argue about it all the time. Eventually, um, the land was taken. It was acquired by the government, and then it's rented back to Chevron. Um, it's up to the government. It was, it's not that Chevron took the land. But people were obviously very, very upset, especially some of the people that own more on land. This is the village called Corinthal behind it. Um, just to give you a quote, this is kind of, you know, the day they grabbed my land, I lost my words. If I remember that day, I have to stop myself from going mad. So people are terribly upset at the loss of this land. And also, say, they were compensated, and in fact, Chevron negotiated a higher rate of compensation than the government originally offered. Um, but there's still a lot of argument over the fact that people say they had to pay bribes to get their compensation. Not to Chevron, but all this was done by the government. So throughout this story is a very strong theme about corruption and accusations of corruption. The government are corrupt. The government have corrupt deals with multinationals. We never find out the truth. The government, they said they'd give us this money for our land, but in fact we had to pay a large bribe to get it. It's not as clear-cut as Chevron would like to suggest it is. Okay, so the, the wider context is, of course, a huge amount of opposition against other developments of natural resources and mining within Bangladesh. Some of you may have heard about Pulbari, a mine up in Dinajpur, where there's uh, Asia Energy, a British company, are planning to develop a huge mine. Huge amount of resistance, people killed. I mean, you know, kind of the usual story of what happens when global capital needs to have large amounts of land and people resist that because it means people lose their homes and their livelihoods. Okay, so, but there was a lot of ambivalence as well because when the gas company came, they promised lots of things. They said, look, we're going to create development. We're going to help you. We're going to give you jobs. And originally, to build this thing, a lot of local people were employed. Maybe 500 local men and women were employed. So people had high expectations. Um, but like these guys in 2007 around when I took their photo, people, a lot of that, these guys were around, all from the local villages, getting work, getting regular employment. They thought that this was the kind of development that was coming. There would be a school, there would be a fertiliser factory, there would be um, an energy plant, there would be a big development of the area that would finally give people work. Global capitalism would arrive. However, this isn't what happened. Okay, because basically what happened was they finished the gas field, they finished the plant, and they don't need the labourers. It's reliant upon highly skilled labour. So <coughs> these guys are actually working on the road, but um, and there are still local labourers working on the roads, but you don't see local labourers inside, which because it relies on, on, on this highly skilled labour. So disappointment and resentment prevail, basically. So that's the background. And just to show you the um, villages where we did our field work, Kakura and Kurimpur, the two villages where we did the field work. Nadimpur is where I did my original doctoral work. The gas field is there. Kakura is about 80% landless. It's, nobody from Kakura lives in the UK. 
Kurunthor is a mixture of very rich families who are in the UK, a lot of Hindu families actually, and also a very high level of landlessness. Now, I'm going to show you some rather gruesome pictures. I hope you don't mind. I want to take a, a kind of um, a pause and go back to thinking about local ideologies and transnational ideologies of giving and receiving. Okay, and I took these photos at Corbani Eid a few years ago. Well, um, those of you that are familiar with, um, with Islam, with Corbani Eid, will know that this is the sacrifice of goats or bulls and meat, where um, the meat is redistributed. Some of the meat is uh, kept by the family, and some of it is given as charity to um, poor people. So basically, these guys are actually butchers. They're, they're ritual butchers, and they came to the household where I stay, and they had two bulls who were, of, of, they were whole bulls originally, and within about 10 minutes they'd turn into pieces of bull, and they cut them up, and um, all the guys in the family came, and they cut up the bits of bull, and cut it into chunks like that. Um, I always manage to exit when I actually do the killing of the bull, I don't like it. Um, so I miss that bit, I'm pleased to say. Um, and then people start to accumulate in the, um, in the yards of the places where the sacrifices have taken place. I should say also that, in fact, these bulls were paid for by the cousins who live in Newcastle. And, in fact, this year, they only, this is 2008, this year they only had two because times were hard in the restaurant business. It was the recession, so people, they couldn't afford so many bulls. These people are all in migrants from other parts of Bangladesh who are, do, who are working as cheap labour in people's, in people's houses. They come with their um, bags, and then they're given small chunks of meat, and they go off, and they, they go from house to house. So this is, of course, a, a Muslim practice, and it is just, you know, it's reflected in other um, ideas about redistribution and ritual. Um, the thing, a practice called shini, where the people make a little cakes and things to celebrate, or to for when somebody's got an exam or there's something you're worried about, then you distribute it amongst the people in your village, especially to the poor people. However, these these um, practices have a spatial dimension because one's own poor, the people that you give the um, charity to, come from one's own village, and also tend to be the people that one is most closely related to. Okay, I just want to read a bit now. I hope you don't mind. That the morality of giving is matched by morality of receiving should come as no surprise to anthropologists skilled in mouths, obviously. For as we all know, the gift is a social contract. All gifts must be reciprocated, if not, for if they're not, social ties are denied. In this schema, suggested by Mao, societies move from archaic to a system of total services based on gifts and reciprocity to a modern, fragmented society in which gift-giving is superseded by commercial relations, which this argument has been much discussed and critiqued. For example, Johnny Parry, in his discussion of the Indian gift, he argues that societies featuring an advanced division of labour and world religions with transcendent values, pure gifts might be thought of as aesthetic acts, so ideally, pure gifts, aesthetic acts, where it's highly complex division of labour, should be made in secret without any, of any sort of worldly return. You mustn't know that you gave it, otherwise the purity of your act is, is mullet, is, is sullied. <coughs> the expectation of return should be denied. So, for example, of a pure gift, if you go to some of the Muslim websites over... Um, 
of Kobani Eid, things like um, they say for £45, we can, you give us £45, we'll, off, we'll do Kobani for you on your behalf. You don't, nobody knows you gave and nobody knows that, it, you know, you never know who received it. That I think we could think of as a pure gift. Now, however, in, the, in Bibiana, this area um, where I did my fieldwork is more complex. Here, Islamic moralities and practices such as Kobani, Zaka, structure and provide an ideological framework for certain forms of giving. But all gifts are embedded in local and transnational social relationships, in which giving creates and recreates both hierarchy and connection. Indeed, hierarchy and connection are two sides to the same coin. So if there's no pure gift, what is reciprocated by those who receive the help? Basically, what's reciprocated is labor, informal labor. You know, I, I give to my cousin because I've got more money. I've got contacts in Britain. She hasn't really. But she'll come to my household and she'll sweep up. She'll help cut up the fish. She'll be around. She'll be supportive. She's part of, she'll be one of my sort of general network of clients. Domestic labor, prayers, devout subservience, and so forth. All of this giving is underlain by extreme economic inequality. Plus social hierarchies in which certain things are given in certain ways to different people. So poor relatives are given help when they need it. For example, if a child is sick or your husband drops down dead, you will be given a lot of help and support. And I've also, as a visitor to this village for a long, over a long period of time, I've got very much drawn into those sorts of patronage relationships. Whereas somebody that you don't know who's just a beggar who will come to the, they go around houses with begging bowls and little bags. You just give them a handful of grain or some taka and it's, and it's done. Okay, one of the other things about this system of reciprocity and giving is that it's inherently unstable. Because, of course, it depends upon the vagaries and the whims of the people that give. If I go to Britain and set up my life in Newcastle or Burnley, and my children are born there, they're not going to care so much about the people back in the villages. So it's very, very unstable. And therefore, there's always a tension between people in Bangladesh who want to stress their connectedness to the people in the UK and people in the UK who feel burdened by it. For example, um, one of the um, brothers of the family where I stay, who um, was in Britain, his, he grew up in Bangladesh, but he went to, came to Britain when, in his early 30s, or maybe late 20s. He married his cousin. He told me that he couldn't afford to go to Bangladesh because last time he went, he'd spent 10 grand on all the presents he had to take back, suitcases and suitcases of stuff that he had to take back and redistribute amongst people. So poor people are very reliant upon this um, patronage. However, what do people really want? Do they want patronage and charity, or do they want something else? What people really want, of course, is what everybody in this room, we all need and want. They want secure employment. They want an infrastructure that works. And they want a sense of rights. They want to be compensated for things that have gone wrong and for their loss of land and for their loss of livelihoods. Okay. So, so far we've got two working models of exchange. The first is one in which money, goods, and other forms of support are given by patrons in return for moral virtue and political support, labour, and so forth. The gift is neither a pure aesthetic act nor a contract between equals, but embedded in and reproducing inequality. The second model involves neither moral virtue nor long-term social relationships, but is one of straightforward compensation, whether financial or in kind. So basically, this is a, you know, the model I think most, you know, I would be using is you came to my area, you took land, you took my livelihood, I can no longer use the land in the way that I could, I can't graze my cattle, etc., etc. I want compensation. There's no social relationship there, just a straightforward model of compensation. 
However, what I want to suggest in this paper is that CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, involves a third model of exchange, which dodges both that of straightforward compensation, which basically landowners got straightforward compensation, they did get paid for their land, but those using the land didn't get, and that of local patronage. Here the model is of gifts given in the name of community engagement, or CSR. As I hope to demonstrate, the moralities and motivations that underline, underlie Chevron's community engagement program are fundamentally different. From making development gifts, they're attempting a highly complex and at times contradictory set of exchanges. They're attempting to gain the moral virtue of a pure gift with its denial of social contracts and reciprocity, while also hoping to win the compliance of local people in order that they can extract the gas from under their land. Therefore, their transactions involve neither straightforward compensation and nor do they involve a long-term social connectedness and obligations of localised gifts. Basically, Chevron's community engagement programmes adhere to the international discourses of sustainability and helping people to help themselves via individual entrepreneurship, access to microcredit and so on. In this, I suggest a corporation is attempting to make pure gifts which create virtue and hopefully bring them salvation from the morally dubious role of being a multinational extracting resources in a country like Bangladesh. Unlike the pure gifts of the world religions that Parry discusses, however, this salvation does not take place in the next world, but in the parallel world of global arenas. Rather than liberation from worldly bondage, what is gained is a cleansed international reputation. Like the aesthetic gifts of those seeking religious salvation, the oil company gift must strive to deny social relationships with those that receive it. Indeed, to admit such relationships is to open oneself up to moral danger, as Parry argues for the pure gift, aesthetic gifts. One can have partners with community leaders, but not real social relationships with the very poor, who are the ultimate recipients of the gift, for these are mired in the murky and dangerous stuff of hierarchy and patronage. Okay, so making that argument, I'm really, I mean, I didn't just get there. I'm starting off with um, use, thinking about and using the work by Jock Sterrett, um, Heike Henkel, on the development gift. I don't know if anybody's familiar with this. They, they argue that despite international development orthodoxies of partnership with NGOs, in fact, the development gift, when you give money to an NGO, when the NGO gives money to its southern partners, what they basically do is recreate difference and hierarchy. This argument is brilliantly developed by Dinah Rajak, who's at Sussex, I'm pleased to say. He's used theories of the gift to analyse CSR programmes carried out by the Anglo-American mining company in South Africa. Rather than business and markets being amoral, as Mao suggested, Rajak argues, CSR brings morality into business practice, allowing mining companies to extend moral authority over places where extraction takes place by, via discourses of partnership, responsibility and so on. So not only do global codes of ethics act as a form of governmentality, which people such as Catherine Dolan have argued, they also naturalise neoliberal tenets such as entrepreneurship and the role of the market, whilst eliding questions of power and ecology and inequality. So they're not just a moral bolt-on. CSR is not just a moral bolt-on to business. In other words, it's part of business practice. While CSR discourses of partnership, empowerment, empowerment and participation allow the company to avoid charges of patronage, on the ground, the politics of the gift remain. However, the differences between Dinah's work in South Africa and mine in Bibiana and Bangladesh are noteworthy. In Bibiana, the oil company, the gas company, are not there for good. She's, she's, she, talks, she's, she writes about a mining company which employs hundreds and hundreds of local people. Here they don't. 
Here they're only here for the time being whilst the gas um, supply work um, lasts. In fact, they have no local, they have no real relationships with local people. Instead, they've hired an NGO to carry out their community engagement program. And as I said, they don't employ local people. If things get too tricky in Bangladesh, they will pull out. Of course, another reason why um, the, the community, community CSR is not a pure gift is because, in fact, the politics surrounding it are much more complicated where mining is concerned. For the gift of community engagement involves contradictory objectives. Whilst one of Chevron's objectives is, denote a pure, is to donate a pure gift, another is a very high expectation that the gift will be reciprocated in the form of gratitude, public displays of gratitude, and thereby enhancing Chevron's reputation. So they give a gift, they say it's pure, they have, they have, they're only interested in creating sustainability, helping the poor to help themselves, but what they do get back, they hope, is a public display of gratitude, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Community engagement thus attempts the tough gymnastic act of successful manoeuvre on both the local and the global scale. Or put another way, being both a pure gift creating spiritual virtue and a recipro reciprocated gift creating social relationships, not of long-term patronage with the very poor, but short-term links with local leaders who are willing to perform gratitude and partnership for Chevron's PR machinery. Part of this involves the creation of a certain sort of community. To have these grateful community leaders who are going to come on the, on the covers of your CSR reports, you have to have a certain sort of community which emerges through particular discursive practices. And you also have to have people engaging in the kinds of practices um, that, uh, that you're um, promoting, such as microfinance, etc., etc. So the first thing that they did in that case, was to create a certain sort of community. Okay. So, first you have to invent partnership, and then you have to invent a community to be partners with, or the two things go together. Basically, Chevron, wherever you look at Chevron's um, PR literature, their CSR reports, what you'll read again and again and again and again, or what you come across is the term partnership. We have an unwavering commitment to being a good partner. This is one of their... They have a thing called the Chevron Way, and this is part of their vision, which is to be a good partner. To have partners, you have to have communities and people with which to partner. And in fact, local leaders can help to facilitate that partnership. So basically, when you talk, when I talked to the various executives involved in building up the community engagement program, they talked a lot about how they met the local leaders. You know. It's very complicated who are the local leaders. They met a certain group of people who were willing to negotiate with them. But they create them as local leaders who then became very, very good friends and ring them up all the time and they built up these close relationships with them. In fact, what I quickly realised was the, guy, the main guy involved in the community, relation, in the community engagement programme has really no idea of the internal dynamics of how these communities work. He has no idea of leadership and what that means. Um, I mustn't divulge because I haven't got much time and I've got lots to say, but to give you an example of that, they did a thing called flaring where they, in the middle of the night, they suddenly let off a huge amount of gas. It's, it is safe, although it's very pollutant probably. Um, and basically the gas, there's a huge amount, a huge flame comes out of the um, gas tower, the, the pipes. And the people in Dhaka said, but we told the local leaders about it. We texted them and told them it was going to happen. They had an image that the local leaders were going to go and tell everybody, but of course they didn't. And so people were woken up by these huge flames and people, there was absolute panic and mayhem. 
complete terror. People ran out of the villages. They hid in the ponds. They hid in the fields. They thought there was going to be a blowout. You know, background is, of course, there are a lot of blowouts in Bangladesh and gas fields where these accidents do happen. We, it's, um, safety is a very important um, concern for people. Okay, so basically, forging positive relations with these leaders is key to the creation of partnership and community. Um, and taking from Tanya Murray Lee's work um, in Indonesia, where she talks again about the creation of community, the creation of partnership in terms of a form of governance. And what these, these schemes do is they render what are essentially political problems to do with inequality, poverty, loss of livelihoods, etc., into technical issues with a range of technical solutions. So what you need to do, if you're going to have a technical solution to a technical problem, is you have to define the problem. A key element of the process is therefore problematization. The problem has to be identified. Then you have the problem and then you bring in the experts. What, what else would you do? And the experts have focus group discussions, they do participatory rural appraisal, there are consultancies and so forth. The work and business of development is quickly un is put underway. As Murray Lee says, to govern through a community requires that that community be rendered technical. It must be investigated, mapped, classified, documented, interpreted. So in all of the accounts that I found published and oral accounts from the mining executives, they talk about how we went there, we found out what their needs were. One executive said to me, before we came, there was nothing here. You know, there was no programs. It was terrible. Um, so we had to form, our goal was always to form a partnership with the local community. We had a strategic approach. We had studies, baseline, etc. Okay. What was the capacity of the community? It's about, you know, they're going to develop productive skills through training and education, etc. So I'm not saying that these are bad things to do. It's easy to, for me to stand here and sort of be slightly mocking. I'm not, I'm, it's not that the exercise in itself is... is that's not what I'm really talking about. I'm talking about the way the discursive field is framed. The community, the problem, and the solutions, which are microcredit, training, a supportive environment, a systematic process of improving livelihood, access to quality services, community mobilisation, viable sustain, etc., etc. They instituted a um, an alternative livelihoods programme focused on the poor people who had lost their livelihoods to the gas fields. So they're aware that, you know, it's not, it's no point just giving compensation to the landowners because these people already were quite well off. The people that really suffered from this were the people that didn't own the land but used it. They also set up village development organisations, VDOs, involved in committees of local leaders who chose the beneficiaries for the credit and the training and so forth, the, uh, the microcredit programmes. So through that mechanism of working through village development organisations and NGOs that you um, hire to carry out the programmes, it means that Chevron themselves don't actually have any direct relationships with the people living in these communities. The VDOs, village development organisations, are modelled on a notion of naturalised communities in which leaders speak for and know the people and in which the role of development is to strengthen and modernise structures providing training, improving access to markets, and so forth. Okay, so alongside that, I think that's, is, the, is the, a kind of a, a mapping of the terrain of our community. Is that not actually, that's a bit a muddled phrase, but there's a, the practices which actually carve out the area around the gas field. Firstly, they called it Bibiana, which is um, the name of a little river that runs next to Nadampur, but it, nobody ever, I, I'd never heard of Bibiana before. So they named it, they named the area Bibiana, the Bibiana gas field and its terrain around it. 
this is a safety sign on the way um, into the, the actual guest was a couple of miles from here. Um, and they get they got local kids, they gave them all Chevron t-shirts, and it's a, sort of saying, you know, watch out for us because we've got a road now. Look out for road safety. That's another one using um, young men here at the local madrasa. So again, it's sort of using um, local people to brand them and also show that they're responsible and they have a sense of responsibility to their community. They're, they're going to try very hard not to knock the children down and run them over, which does sometimes happen, not at this particular gas site, but um, has happened. And in fact, I think that the traffic was a big issue originally in the days of Unicol when people were driving too fast and so forth. So that's one way in which you create a community that then you can be partners with. What about the gifts that were given? In the early days of Unicol, which in fact they say now, Chevron said, oh, they made so many mistakes, it was terrible then. Then I found out that the guy, he's the head of um, external affairs, actually was working for Unicol. It's the same staff. They just um, were taken over, when they were taken over by Chevron, they became Chevron. Um, but they gave out a lot of largesse. They gave out um, slab latrines. They gave out T-shirts to all the children. They um, gave out house, um, roofs and things for people whose houses had been damaged in a flood. Concrete pillars for low-income housing, etc. One of the main things that people wanted was connection to the gas supply, which I haven't mentioned to you, because they're not actually connected to the gas supply. In fact, Kakura doesn't even have electricity. So they're taking this gas out, but people can't access it. And that's been a point of huge amount of agitation contention. Um, now, Chevron can't actually do that. It's up to the government to do it. I mean, there are technical issues. They can't just say, yes, we're going to connect you up. But, in, but because they realised that energy was a very um, moot um, and contested thing, they gave out um, a new um, high-tech design of um, a stove which people cook with um, firewood. And that means there's a lot of smoke pollution and it leads to... Um, uh, chest problems and so forth, especially for women. So they, um, they gave out uh, green and uh, healthier versions of these little stoves. Um, in fact, nobody uses them because they don't fit the right type of firewood. But basically, in making the gift, they said, this isn't a gift, you have to pay for it. Because if you don't pay for it, you won't pay for its upkeep properly. It's all within this discourse of sustainability and helping people to help themselves. So if you give us 200, it costs 800 taka, you give us 200 taka, then um, you will have a sense of ownership. Um, other, the, so, and they did all this through the local NGOs. Other gifts came with similar conditions attached, again aimed at producing a sense of ownership. Two Smiling Sun medical clinics were built, run by the NGO SSKS, again partly funded by the donations of Londoners. So again, people are, get free diagnostic services but not free medicines. And there's an ambulance, but you have to pay for it. And... Um, that meant that for the very poorest people, in fact, they couldn't use it because they couldn't pay for the medicines, and for them, the major issue is lack of medicine. They didn't build a school as, as the people had originally asked for, but they did. Um, they provided support for high schools, teacher training, um, scholarships, and so forth. So the clinics and scholarships are part of Chevron's explicit objective and the Alternative Livelihoods Programme of creating sustainable development and community partnership in Bibiana. This is repeated again and again in their literature. Chevron Bangladesh will always consider itself a partner of the local people of Bibiana in their community's effort to improve their socio-economic condition. 
the company would like to strengthen this partnership with a view to achieving sustainable development in the locality. Now, I don't want to give the impression that this is all just a complete waste of time, that nobody benefits. Of course there are benefits, but I didn't, I'm not particularly interested in assessing whether the programme works or doesn't work. I wasn't doing an impact assessment. Um, they can do that if they like. You know, um, what I'm interested in are the discourses around it. So some people told us they did appreciate the gifts, but, one peop- but many other people talk- talked about being excluded. One man told us, Chevron has established a community hospital, but we don't benefit from it. What's the point of all the expenses borne by us? First you have to pay 40 tacker to register, then you have to pay 20 tacker for every visit. None of the medicine is free, etc., etc. One man said, this company has been looting our gas while paying nothing to us villagers. So that's using the model of basically financial compensation. Other people say that Chevron should be actually acting like the state. They've come here, they're using our gas, they should provide us with all the benefits of the, of the state, which we don't get from the state, I hasten to add. He said, so they're not partners, but they're placed in the role of, of the state or, I guess, of a, of a highly patronate, um, uh, of, of a corporate um, patron. Say you have a big disease and Chevron is giving us paracetamol. If the disease is big, the treatment should be big too. You need a big doctor, diagnostic operations, expensive medicine, good care and so on. But Chevron want to satisfy us with paracetamol. So again, this is really taking issue with a programme based on an idea of, you know, people have to pay a little bit to have ownership because people have to be helped to help themselves. Of course, Chevron don't want to be in that role. So very key to all this is the notion of sustainability and helping people Those are the slabler trains about to be installed. Helping people to help themselves. As Steve Wilson, who's then the CEO of Chevron in Bangladesh, told me, the locals of Bibiana are a proud people. They don't want handouts. They want to be helped to help themselves. You know, he said, give a man a fishing rod. I wasn't sure about that. I wasn't sure that that was quite... That's the way he wanted to see people. It fitted in with his ideology. So basically, um, the Alternative Livelihoods Programme, it's loans and savings, etc., etc. Adult literacy, a sewing programme for local women where they sew and then the, the clothes that they make are sold on the local market. The Alternative Livelihoods Programme and other Chevron-funded initiatives have the avowed aim of providing self-reliant entrepreneurs with access to markets, education and health services, which they must contribute to in order to avoid dependency and create local self-reliance and self-discipline. With its stress on credit, training and improving access to markets, the programme neatly replicates the unspoken norms of neoliberal capitalism, described by Ong as populated by free individuals who are then induced to self-manage according to the market principles of discipline, efficiency and competitiveness. Okay, you create a community, you create a community programme, but what you have to also create is success. Otherwise, really, it's a waste of money because it doesn't enhance your reputation. So... The gift of community engagement has to be fully, can only be fully reciprocated if recipients are publicly grateful. I'm borrowing here and building upon David Moss's work um, uh, on a project in, um, called Cultivating Development on a project in India that he worked on in the 90s, 
where he basically is writing about the way that what projects do is they create success. They're about narrative. They narrate and construct a story of success in order to carry on running and um, to be seen to be worthwhile. So he argues that the ethnographic question for the anthropology of development isn't whether projects work or not, but how they work. He says that projects need to um, enroll a range of supportive actors. They need interpretive communities. And in fact, managers of projects actually spend more time managing information, managing the PR, managing the visits by VOPs and so forth, than they do actually doing the project, because actually that's what it is all about. These performances are absolutely central to the success of Chevron's community engagement programs, which are aimed at a, primarily at an interpretive community involving Bangladeshi state officials and so forth, and competing corporations and, and Chevron's international executives. More generally, of course, they seek good PR in terms of public relations within Bangladesh and internationally. A key event in the performance of success is the handing over ceremony. The handing over ceremony, if you go to the literature, you'll find endless photographs of somebody shaking somebody's hand and giving them something, usually um, uh, an award or, or a key. I don't know what it is that they give. Um, this is another quote, actually. So the, the handing over um, ceremony is all about gratitude and so forth. In fact, um, speeches are made, photographs taken usually at the moment of the handover. Now, I'm not trying to say that these are false, that these little ceremonies are false. People genuinely have really strong feelings about them. People come to this area, you know, Bangladeshi um, executives, uh, expatriate executives, they get the local people are there, they hand things over, their speeches are made. It's very moving. One executive told me that it had been the second most exciting day of his life being at one of these ceremonies and seeing the amazing good works that they'd done in Bibiana. I didn't ask him what the first most exciting day was. Um, but however, they are carefully staged. And one of the jokes that I heard quite, you know, a lot of people told me was that there was a beef fattening programme which involved a bull. And in fact, and there was a lot of applause because the bull was so fat, but apparently the bull actually had been bought from outside. But not by the Chevron, I don't think, but by the people who were supposedly recipients to please them. So they need an audience. Um, um, and this, I think, is a fascinating Bibiana Friendship Bridge. It's a little bridge in Koreanpur. That's me taking a photograph of it. Um, why is it in English? Nobody in this village speaks English. It's, they, they might speak a bit of English, but the, the English speakers are in the UK. So it's about, why, why put it in English? It's actually about your audience, who actually aren't the people that are necessarily receiving it. So local performances of success are turned seamless, seamlessly into heartwarming stories of partnership and community. Um, like Buffy Wilson, I don't know if you... Buffy Wilson, there's not time to read all this through, but she's the wife of um, the Chevron president. She came, it was a um, heartwarming ceremony. She was accorded a rousing reception. Shampa Begum and Jotson and Deb finally found a reason to smile. I spelt wrong, but I didn't write that. So Amazing. After last year's floods, sweet, etc., etc. Um, this is extraordinary. I just feel exhilarated, says somebody who's um, been, who's a recipient of the Alternative Livelihoods Program, and he's been trained to be to use fertilizers and stuff. I don't know exactly what, but um, I feel exhilarated. All my efforts have been directed to the one and only girl, which is farming. By fulfilling this dream, I will drive away poverty from my family. It's all great stuff. 
Um, I brought with me also some examples of something else, which I wasn't, I wasn't sure there were going to be so many people here, and I thought you might like to look at. Um, would you like to pass these things around? Because there's another sort of gift that I want to end up talking about. So there's three things, there are three artefacts here. So from the gift of community engagement to the corporate gift, the journey ends. Finally, let us consider the material goods produced by the company. These also transmit messages of community partnership and support and are given to visitors. But here the gift finally comes to rest after its complicated journey. Originally offered in the form of development by the company to the community in return for performances of partnership, community consensus, and the disadvantaged people of Bibiana being helped to help themselves. The gift is converted into value via corporate narratives of success, which are conveyed globally via corporate literature, which you'll find on the internet, and um, further materialized in the shapes of mugs, calendars, pieces of embroidery, and even packets of tea. There's a packet of tea coming around. The mug, I'm afraid, I broke. I don't know where the piece of embroidery is, but there's a lovely piece of embroidery. Um, this is then passed in a different direction, upwards, if you like, to people who come to their offices in Dhaka, who are coming to visit them, or people like me, or journalists. They're given these gifts, which um, chime with a different morality. The packaging of these gifts is their very point. For example, on the front of the packet of tea, we read... Tea from the garden of Chevron's neighbourhood. On the back, we're told, um, Lakatora Tea Estate of National Tea Co Limited, one of the oldest tea gardens in Salette, has been growing quality tea for the people both home and abroad for the past 125 years. Chevron, one of the world's leading resource, resource and project development companies, has been contributing significantly to the development of Bangladesh's energy sector. So here, the colonial history of the tea sector and its obvious parallel with the presence of Chevron and other foreign companies is elided under an image of economic productivity and contribution to national development. Similar national sentiments are carried on the company calendar, which is doing the rounds. Again, it's about partnership with Bangladesh as the nation, not the community, but the nation, that takes centre stage. Each month, the calendar is illustrated by a beautifully shot photograph of people carrying the Bangladeshi flag. So they're absolutely um, zooming in on Bangladeshi nationalism in this. And they, they, their audience is, is uh, professional middle-class Bangladeshis. It's the state. It's the level of people in Dhaka, not the local people. I know that's a very false distinction. So to give, just to quote... Human energy leading Bangladesh with energy and spirit. In Bangladesh, where the people are known for their resilience, Chevron seeks to identify the spirit that guides them in their actions. Bangladesh's national spirit is best exemplified by its people's desire to build a better tomorrow, to strive forward by attaining economic growth and to go beyond the odds with the overriding power of aspiration and hard work. All Bangladeshis play a role in this progressive thrust towards the future by bravely facing myriad adversities and by actively contributing to the realisation of their collective goals. Okay. So, different sorts of gifts. I'm just going to read out my conclusion. Reducing the gift of community engagement and the moralities which underpin it to neoliberal governance or in more crude terms, as a way of buying off local resistance. This is the more nuanced and complex ways in which business advantage, neoliberal ideology, and PR tactics interweave with a range of moral stances, dreams, and aspirations, which at times coalesce and at times contradict each other. 
When asked what motivated him, for example, the um, head of corporate responsibility for in Bangladesh, he said that he, he wanted to do good for the company, he wanted to enhance the reputation of, of Chevron. But then he said at a personal level, he wants to harness the wealth of Chevron to help the people. So it's too simple just to say this is a completely oppressive relationship and that there's only one morality. They've got a lot of different moral orders working together, sometimes together and sometimes in contradictory ways. The gift of community engagement is thus linked to a variety of moral orders which appear in different guises at different points along its journey and are both hidden and explicit and adhere to the different and at times contradictory aims of the gift on the one hand, creating reciprocity and dependency, and on the other aiming at a morally pure gift via discourses of sustainability, partnership and helping the poor to help themselves. Neoliberal ideology figures large. The creation of a certain sort of community made up of entrepreneurial and self-reliant consumers is key. Nationalism also plays a part and is used by the company to suggest that as a partner with the nation, it too seeks economic development and improvement, hence the gas field. So these scapes, a bit like Apadurai's scapes, they're overlapping, unbounded, not reducible to a single location. They become meaningful at different points in the journey of the gift. Sustainability in helping the poor to help themselves resonates deeply with the moralities of first world consumers, employees and opinion formers, for whom questions of ethics and certain forms of morality, rights and justice for example, are placed at the centre of good business practice as well as personhood. That Chevron needs to promote its activities on the international national stage as morally good is not simply about governance but also about the moral orders of the people that run Chevron. They're part of these global moralities which believe that they should be ethical, they should be doing good. That, that, that's part of their job, part of their, their, their own personal morality. Here, the dubious nature of natural resource extraction and all the contestations and problems that, it, that surround it is expiated by an attempt to give a pure gift in which the past sins of oil companies are purified by the donation in which, theory, in theory at least, is unreciprocated, for rather than being received by people for whom there is a social contract, it is received by people who are empowered in their terms and freed from patronage by programmes of sustainability. The reward for the donor of the aesthetic corporate gift is that the sins in the profane world of the local are, as we have seen, erased in the global world of corporate reports, internet sites and CSR conferences. Yet what we have also seen is this pure corporate gift so closely linked to the neoliberal project, both globally and within Bangladesh, is at odds with moralities of giving and receiving within Bibiana and its transnational social fields. This isn't because of cultural clash. I'm not suggesting that, as traditional development tales of why projects fail have have it, but because the idea of helping Shahaja to help one's own poor is deeply embedded in particular political and economic structures wherein the state is ineffective in its provision of basic human needs, and access to material livelihoods only comes via one's relatedness and connection with others. In lieu of education, medicine, roads and supplies of energy, not to say regular sources of regular employment, or indeed in 2008 food, there are people going hungry in some of these villages because of the recession price hike, uh, condition, economic conditions at the time, in, in, in view of that, is it surprising that the inhabitants of villages like Kakura are unreceptive to the injunction that they should be helping themselves? Moreover, Chevron is not an anonymous donor of pure gifts, but a foreign company who, in the eyes of many of our informants, are exploiting a local natural resource and therefore owe the people 
their own form of payback for the gas that they're extracting and the land that they have taken by the government. Community development gift has thus been given to people who subscribe to a different version of reality. Slab latrines, ALP programs, clinics and so on are payments within a straightforward model of compensation, not gifts. This mixing of messages and motivations, what we might think of as the collision of three models of exchange, remember going back to thinking about um, gifts and compensation and so forth, causes profound problems for all concerned. For those receiving what they feel should be compensation, the price paid has not been determined by them, but by Chevron, who decide the budget for community engagement and what form the programmes will take. It is not an immoral or value-free transaction, but involves many injunctions concerning the behaviour of those that receive it. That's not to say that CSR is somehow bad or doesn't work, but rather that within the model of compensation it doesn't fit the bill. Because besides financial compensation for lost land and property, what local people wanted from the gas plant are what we all want and need. We need jobs, working infrastructure, schools, medical services, and so on. We don't, not goats and microcredit. For Chevron, the CSR is also problematic, despite their stories of success. This is because, despite their attempts at donating a pure gift within the local arena, they are, by definition, involved in a social relationship and connections and as we've seen in Bibiana, these relationships are invariably embedded in hierarchy, patronage, and inequality, the morally dangerous and spiritually impure elements that CSR programs must on all accounts avoid if they are to lead to company salvation. As we've seen, in order to avoid these problematic relationships, the company's gift thus seeks disconnection via policies that aim at creating sustainability and the injunction to help people should help themselves. However, people, what the poor want is connection. They are therefore never satisfied. It is within this context that the paradox within I start, with which I started this paper um, finally makes sense. Within the moralities of giving and receiving in the villages surrounding the gas plant, when people announce that Chevron give nothing, what they mean is Chevron has neither compensated them for their use of local gas via the value-free provision of jobs and economic development, and nor are they behaving like patrons, for their gifts are limited by the restrictions imposed by their idea of sustainability. Does the paradox matter? Probably not, for Chevron, who via their PR machinery proceed with their stories of success, which rather than being fake, or as educated Bangladeshis would say, insincere, they're either naive or they're willfully ignorant of local realities, depending upon how cynical one is. After all, the profane sins committed locally can always be erased by ritualised performances of success aimed at the parallel world of international markets. For the recipients of the gifts, however, it matters a great deal. A few people, the local leaders, have benefited from their connections to Chevron via contracts, work and other business opportunities, though many of them have lost local popularity. The poorest people in the area, however, remain either the same or worse off than before, facing dwindling employment in agriculture, growing economic inequalities and a hand-to-mouth existence in which the only way they can feed their children is to make claims that are interpreted by others as being very demanding. <laughs> <laughs>